this morning's passage, and slightly beyond as well, if you were to go back to 118, is a passage for you if you've ever longed for the message of Christ to be more convincing. Or if you've ever longed for the people of Christ to be more appealing, attractive, compelling. Or if you've ever longed for the preachers of Christ to be more eloquent, clever, persuasive. Do you ever think that? You picture that scenario, you're at a party, you're having a discussion with somebody, and you long for the jaw-dropping, there-is-no-response, knock-down argument to their comments. Suddenly the room goes quiet, and people appear thoughtful and turn to face you, and things click into place with a humble look of realisation, and then they say, what must I do to be saved? Or maybe you dream of that opportunity to introduce your mates to your new Christian friend because they are a minor celebrity. They are powerful or rich or successful or they've been on TV once or twice. Or, or maybe it's for our preachers to be a bit more inspirational, engaging and clever and impressive. The kind of people you'd be really keen to bring your friends to church to hear. The problem is, sometimes when we long for those things, we're, we're close to thinking like the Corinthians. We're close to thinking like the world thinks. Because the surprise, it seems to me, at the heart of these verses for this morning, is that the appearance of weakness in the people of God, or the message of God, or the, the preachers of God, is not a mistake. It, it's not God having done a mediocre, pretty shabby job, and he's, he's done the best he can, and he's, he's gathered those who were picked last at PE, and that's his team. And that's not it. That is the plan. This is deliberate. This is the way it's meant to be. But I want to say we need to take care as we come to these verses, because... This isn't all the Bible has to say about these things. So Paul is speaking to a particular people, I take it, with particular issues going on. Elsewhere, we will know, if you read through Acts, for example, he works hard. He argues and debates and persuades and, and seeks to convince people. He urges us to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. Elsewhere, we know the Christian church is, seen up and, is, is pinned up and seen as an attractive Beautiful community. Jesus isn't just the only light of the world. We are the light of the world. And so when he comes to these verses for this morning and he is brutally honest about how the world perhaps sees us, a motley crew with a mediocre message, we need to recognise there's a context for these verses. Paul is speaking to a particular people with particular issues that he wants to downplay rhetoric and fame and all that kind of stuff. But at the heart of the paradox series that we're just finishing this week has been that fact the Lord, the way the Lord does things isn't perhaps the way that we would do them. Our mindset, we struggle with this, we pull against it, we don't like it. It's, it's the opposite of what we expect. You, you want to be healed like Naaman? Then, then you've got to say you're helpless. You need to recognise you can't help yourself. Do you want to be a Christian leader? Then you need to be a servant. Do you want to have true life? Then you need to die to self. Do you want to be strong and powerful? 
then we need to be weak. And it's not the way we would do it. We've seen in past weeks that in God's kingdom, the way down is the way up. The greatness is seen in servanthood. And I take it as we reach the end of this series, we reach a T-junction. What do we do with this stuff? What have you done with it? Because we can turn left, and it's a nice theory, it's a nice idea, but in reality, we're just going to file it away, if we're honest, and we'll crash on as we are. Or we can turn right, my right, your left, and it might be countercultural, and it might look foolish in the world's eyes, but with his strength, we will die to self. And we will grasp weakness and foolishness because we'll see from this morning that foolishness in the world's eyes is wisdom in God's eyes. Just before we kind of really jump in, I want to show you a couple of things more broadly from 26, 126 through to 2 verse 5. Just kind of the way the passage works. A couple of things to notice. The first one is he speaks of two different kinds of wisdom. So wisdom number one. Kind of swoop over it with me. Verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Or 2 verse 1, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. Or verse 4 and 5, my message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom. They are not wise. Paul did not sound wise, at least in human terms. But then look at verse 30. In many ways it's the the bridge to both sections and it's kind of the foundation at the heart of the passage as well. Wisdom number two. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Paul opens the dictionary And he turns to wisdom and he crosses it out. He redefines wisdom for us. Corinth is a place of wisdom. Paul explains real wisdom. So it's a passage of two wisdoms and it's a passage as well of two so that's. So have a look more broadly at why God does this. Verse 29, there are two key so that's. So that no one may boast before him. We're we're, we're perpetual glory thieves, aren't we? We love it to be about us, our having earned it and and deserved it and our efforts and our ability. But, But in God's wisdom, it's only about him. So that no one may boast before him. But then again, verse 5, again, do you see? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. But Paul knows us. He knows that we're like the Corinthians and that we love impressive shows of power with people with clever arguments who who look great. And he's concerned that they're going to hang it all on him, so he removes himself from the equation. 
but they can't trust in him, only in God and his power. So that's the general shape of the passage. There's two kinds of wisdoms and there's two so that's, two reasons he gives us as to why God does it like this. First point. One verse 26 to 31. God calls foolish people so that we cannot boast in ourselves. If you know the situation in Corinth, if you know the story of Corinth, you will know that they seem to love power and hierarchy and ladders. Perhaps later on in the letter you see the rich being kind of paraded and looked after particularly carefully, given preferential treatment. And so along comes Paul with his pin and he pops their balloon of pride. And he reminds them of what they were really like. Because they've got all caught up in image. And Paul says, hang on. Do you remember where you've come from? Do you remember the reality of your background? Not many of you were from wise or influential or noble circumstances. And that was the plan. That wasn't an accident. Rather than pinning up poster boy Christian celebrities, God was at work through the margins. Rather than parading the rich and the powerful and the impressive, God was at work through the unexpected. Rather than only targeting the strategic or the privileged, God was at work through little people who don't really matter. But there is variety. This isn't just a kind of working class church with with people from a particular background. He doesn't say none of you, he says not many of you. This isn't a church of just one kind of person. There are a few powerful and prestigious people, it seems. But they're rubbing shoulders with everyone else. It's the body of Christ, united together, despite diversity. And so not many of them are wise, are privileged in the world's eyes. And so not many of us are wise and privileged in the world's eyes. The danger, though, is that we can prioritise those who are privileged in the world's eyes. I remember the story of a friend of mine relocating to a new town, um, settling into a large church. It was quite, a, quite a, a big church, but a particularly, I think, working-class church. Full of people who didn't earn that much money. Perhaps he weren't particularly high up the ladder. And the thing about my friend was he was a world-class surgeon, nationally renowned, Different procedures, he was earning over six figures. And at church they loved him. And they paraded him. Not because of who he was in Christ, but frankly because of what he did in the world. And he was and he is a great guy. At work he was normal, apart from the fact in a car park of Jags and Bentleys he drove a little blue metro. But at church he was a celebrity. And actually he ended up leaving the church because of that. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are foolish and weak and lowly. It's not just theory. If you look back at the history of the church, you see the kind of people that God uses. And it's incredibly liberating. 
because it's normal people like us. Think of Pilgrim's Progress, a book that's been mightily, extraordinary, amazingly used over the years. 350 years ago it was written. Still incredibly contemporary today. Prophetic, almost. And yet John Bunyan was a very normal man. He, he had no formal education, no time at university. He was a, a lowly tinker from, from Bedford. Anybody from Bedford? Are we in trouble? He, he was in prison, basically, because he preached as a non-Anglican in a church. And from that prison, he, he pens the words of the book. Normal, average, insignificant, weak. And yet, through him, the Lord works incredibly, transforming people's lives. Because the problem with being a perpetual glory thief is that we keep needing to be reminded who's in charge. Success comes from him, growth comes from him, even our very conversion, Paul says, comes from him. Our very being a Christian here this morning is from him. Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. Verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. From day one to the end of our days, it is about him. He sets the agenda, it's his plan using his people for his praise. So that, verse 29, no one may boast before him, but, verse 31, we do boast in him. But you know your heart, and I know my heart, and we love it to be about us. How easily it slides into becoming about us and our projects and our plans, doing it our way. And God's just sort of there as a helper, backing us up, doing the stuff that we want to do. I read an incredible account recently. It's a slightly long one, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Um, of a story written in 1966 by the missionary Elizabeth Elliot, and it's called The Graven Image. I'm sure some of you will have read it. It's an incredible story, not just for what she wrote, but the reactions that she received towards this book as well. So she writes a story of a missionary woman working as a Bible translator in the mountains of Ecuador. And one of the keys to her success for translating the Bible into the language there was this young man called Pedro. He, he knew the unwritten dialect. One of the prayers, one of her prayers, is recorded in the book. And you see how important he is She prays, I've been waiting, Lord, waiting and waiting. You know I've waited a long time to be a missionary to mountain Indians. You seem to say translation and medical work, so you gave me Pedro. Just being here today is an answer to prayer. This is her dream. This is where the training has been going. This is what she's longed for. And that day she goes to see Pedro and she finds he's injured himself. Painful wound. And so she gives him penicillin. She's medical as well. And he has a massive anaphylactic shock. And he dies. And the book ends with no silver lining. No turnaround. No real answers. On the last page, there's this this line. She says, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If on the other hand he was God, he has freed me. It turns out the reason Elizabeth Elliot wrote Graven Image was because she had shaped God into her helper 
And really, this was her project. And he would help her do her project in her way. Because we might say she's a glory thief. God was a projection of her wisdom. She says when she was serving this kind of God, she had been incredibly anxious. Never quite sure he was going to come through for her. Never quite able to rest. And the response to her book was extraordinary. Many, many people wrote to her and said God would never let such a thing happen. A woman like her who has prayerfully dedicated herself to her cause, God would not allow that to happen. As a leading evangelical pastor, she says, who, who told her that he had personally kept her book off the annual Christian Book of the Year list for that year. What they didn't know was that basically the book was an autobiography. She tells a story of her being a missionary previously and a man who was the key to this lost language was murdered. And the files that they had made of the language was destroyed, stolen. The names and the places and situations were slightly different, but basically it was a book about her. And so when you read Elizabeth Elliot's books, often there's this theme of trust. Trusting in God, trusting him for his methods, trusting that he knows what he's doing and he is doing things his way. Because the Lord uses the foolish and the weak and the lowly so that we may not boast before him. It's not just Paul flying a kite. Not just trying out a theory that he's dreamt up. 2 verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. It's actually how he did it in Corinth. Second point. God uses foolish preachers so that we can only have faith in him. 2 1 to 5. Read them again. He writes, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, at the the heart of these verses, Paul is saying, me as the messenger, I match the message I bring. It was a message about weakness, a message about God coming to earth as a man, dying on a cross, being raised again for the sins of his people. And It's a weak message in the world's eyes. And so Paul deliberately matches the message by his methods in Corinth. When you head to Corinth, people would expect you to rock up with an eloquent, persuasive, wise, attractive, rhetorical style. And we know he could do that. But in Corinth, he simply explains the simple message of Jesus. And was he afraid? Verse 3, yep. And was he weak? Yep. But it's about Jesus. He is the message and the example in Paul's preaching here. 
Was there fruit? Yes. Perhaps the message sounds a bit weak and a bit foolish and awkward and we almost feel like apologising for it. But it turns lives around. And so verse 5 came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom. We get a glimpse later on in in Corinthians to to see the kind of people who have been affected by this message. Just in passing, Paul says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of you were. It might be a simple message, but it's incredibly powerful. See, the problem in Corinth is if Paul shows up with an amazing speech, smoke machines, white suit, flashing light show, if he looks the business, everyone's wowed by his skills, then what happens when he leaves? We're left scratching our heads thinking, was he just a used car salesman? Have I been duped? Is this real? I wonder who's coming next week. Maybe they'll be flashy and clever and persuasive too. Maybe I'll follow them next. Paul might do for a week, but who knows for the week after. But when Paul comes with none of that, and still lives are transformed and turned around, then their confidence is not in him, but it's the message that he brought. What does this mean for us? I think, as I said, we need to take care in the application, because elsewhere we've said Paul's approach is different. We can read his sermons in Acts, and you see he uses a very different method, a different style. It's not simply a one-size-fits-all thing for Paul. Maybe that in and of itself means we stop and think about how we communicate with others, how we speak to people of Christ, different kinds of people the Lord has put in our lives. not saying we change the content, but it's right to start with where they are, on their terms. And you read of Paul's method here and you think, well, maybe we need to kind of think about how we do evangelism. I know I can easily have a particular structure that I want to explain to people. There's nothing wrong with that. But maybe I need to work out where they're coming from and what it is they're hearing as I do that. Paul was able to adapt his methods to fit his hearers. I think a key thing, though, that we mustn't lose sight of is just to have confidence in the message of the gospel. The simple message of Jesus is weak, at least in human terms, but it is very powerful. And when we feel afraid, that's okay. And when we feel inadequate, that's okay. And we don't feel very eloquent, that's okay. 
The message of Jesus is powerful. It's a message for us as individuals, the kind of people the Lord puts in our week, people we rub shoulders with. But maybe for us as a church too, are there events and occasions in the church calendar where perhaps we ought to simply speak of Christ a bit more readily? We need to be sensitive. We need to not just force things down people's throats. We need to value people and respect people. But this message is powerful. So there's something to be said in simply preaching Christ. I wonder sometimes if we can be reluctant to do that. I think there's application too for those of us who have the privilege of preaching or speaking to others or teaching others in different contexts. Maybe we can have a desire to be overly clever or or eloquent. Maybe to use words and ideas that are deliberately complicated or perhaps we're looking for novelty. Wanting to be a bit different, a bit new and exciting. But again, we don't have to be simplistic or reductionistic. But we can simply be simple and speak of Christ. Because when we're not, and if we're honest, can it simply again boil down to us being glory thieves and wanting to be different? Wanting to be noticed? For it to become about us? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The minister, author, who's now sadly deceased, John Stott, tells a story from 1958. He was doing a kind of university mission week, the kind of thing we've had in Oxford um, fairly recently, the last, last few weeks. Um, and the day before the final meeting, he, he received a message from home saying that his father had sadly passed away. And by the end of the week as well, he was beginning to lose his voice. Here's how he describes the final day of the mission week. He said, it was already late afternoon, and within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission, so I didn't feel I could back away at this time. I went to the Great Hall and I asked a few students to gather around me. I asked one of them to read... Actually, our passage from last week. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. A student read these verses and then I asked him to lay hands on me and pray that those verses might be true in my experience. When time came for me to give my address, I preached. I had to get within half an inch of the microphone. I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality, I couldn't move, I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. Then came the time for me to give the invitation for people to respond. There was an immediate response. Larger than any other meeting during the mission as students came flocking forward. He continues, I've been back to Australia about ten times since 1958 and on every occasion somebody has come up to me and said... Do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? I jolly well do, I reply. Well, they say, I was converted that night. 
so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So as we finish, I'm going to pray that we as a church will be wise in the Lord's eyes, and so prepared to be seen as foolish in the world's eyes. And by wise in the Lord's eyes, I mean willing to embrace weakness and death and hardships and poverty and suffering so that the glory goes to him, so that we can boast in him and not in ourselves.